Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton. It is Monday, and we are standing in the confessional corner. This week, we're going to finish up Article 15 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on human traditions, picking up from the idea that the monks and nuns have a holier life because they have set themselves apart from God and are taking away from the help of the world around them. So we pick up in verse 27. Nor is this enough. When the belief has possessed minds that such ceremonies are necessary for justification, consciences are in miserable anxiety because they cannot exactly perform all ceremonies. How many are there who could list all these ceremonies? There are immense books, indeed whole libraries, containing not a syllable about Christ, about faith in Christ, about the good works of one's own calling. They only collect the traditions and interpretations by which they are sometimes made quite strict and sometimes relaxed. How that most excellent man Gerson is tortured while he searches for the steps and extent of the rules. Yet he is not able to fix mitigation in a definite grade. Meanwhile, he deeply regrets the dangers to godly consciences with the strict interpretation of the traditions produces. All right, so when we get to the point that the belief is so ingrained that nobody questions anymore that these things are necessary for justification, then anxiety takes hold because not everyone can do all these things. Not everyone can do the great works that the traditions have given because, well, first of all, some are only for the clergy. Laity can't do that. I mean, if you're not ordained, you can't do some of these things. But for the lay people, again, who can remember all of them, much less remember all the different rules for all the different ones? Because you have a pilgrimage to this saint's church, and you have a pilgrimage to that saint's church, and a pilgrimage to a third saint's church, but all of them are in completely different circumstances. How do you make sure you're doing it exactly right? Because you can't. You're so overwhelmed by the things that are going on, by the things that you're hoping you're not messing up, that you're missing the entire point of the whole of Christian faith. You're missing out on the whole of Christ because it's got nothing to do with him, but everything about what you are doing or not doing. And that is the anxiety that clouds people's minds. Is that, am I doing it right? Did I do it good enough? Well, good enough is not good enough. You have to do it perfectly. Otherwise, you then have to confess that that, has been, that you didn't do it right. And you have to do the satisfactions that the priest assigns. And it's just a vicious cycle. Keeping minds captive in the doubt that was the medieval Roman church at the time. Melanchthon continues on, starting in paragraph 29. Against this look of wisdom and righteousness and human rights which tricks people, let us strengthen ourselves by God's word. Let us know, first of all, that these rights neither merit the forgiveness of sins or justification before God, nor are they necessary for justification. We have mentioned some testimonies above, 
Paul is full of them. To the Colossians, he clearly says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Here he welcomes both Moses' law and human traditions at the same time, so that the adversaries may not dodge these testimonies according to their custom on the ground that Paul speaks only about Moses' law. He clearly testifies here that he is speaking of human traditions. However, the adversaries do not see what they are saying. If the gospel says that Moses' ceremonies, which were divinely instituted, do not justify, how much less do human traditions justify? And this is the point that Melanchthon and Luther and all the reformers have tried to make and their descendants throughout the last 500 years. They're trying to help people understand that even if Moses' law and keeping it does not save you, how can the things that you and I make up to do save us? I mean, Moses got his directly from God. We made them all up. The logic isn't there. I mean, it just doesn't work. We continue on. Neither do the bishops have the power to institute services as though they justified or were necessary for justification. Yes, the apostles say, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, Acts 15, 10, and so forth, where Peter declares this effort to burden the church a great sin? Paul forbids the Galatians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, it is the will of the apostles that this freedom remain in the church, that no services of the law or of traditions be considered necessary, just as ceremonies were necessary for a time in the law, lest the righteousness of faith be clouded over. This would be the case if people judged that these services merited justification or were necessary for justification. Many seek various mitigations and traditions to heal consciences, yet they do not find any sure steps by which to free consciences from these chains. Just as Alexander solved the Gordian knot once for all by cutting it with his sword when he could not disentangle it, so the apostles free consciences from traditions once for all, especially if they are taught to merit justification. The apostles drive us to oppose this doctrine by teaching and examples. They drive us to teach that traditions do not justify, that they are not necessary for justification, and that no one should invent or receive traditions with the opinion that they merit justification. Then, even if anyone should celebrate them, let them be celebrated as civil customs without superstition, just as soldiers are clothed in one way and scholars in another without superstition. The apostles violate traditions and are excused by Christ. The example was shown to the Pharisees that these services do not benefit. If our people neglect some traditions that are of little help, they are now excused well enough when these are required as though they merit justification. For such an opinion regarding traditions is ungodly. Paul is replete in examples of why human traditions do not justify, that only faith in Christ justifies. Because if you try to do all these things, you cannot be sure that you will follow them all carefully enough, that you have done all the steps in the proper order. But yes, these things can be done as civil customs, with no superstition attached to them, with nothing religious about them. Which makes very good points in our world today, where you have St. Valentine's Day. People all over the world celebrate it. 
not because of the saint that died as a martyr, but because we can send cutesy cards and love notes to each other. Same thing with St. Patrick's Day. Gives us a reason to wear green, to pretend that at least part of you is Irish. But that's all it is. It's a civil custom. It's a civil celebration with no superstition, no religious understanding at all. Any attempts to add superstition, to add religious value to those things are null and void. And we'll see that after Christmas when we get into the invocation of the saints, exactly what it means to venerate, not in a way of worship, but in a way of looking at examples from the saints. Because otherwise, it doesn't matter. Anything that tries to bring about some religious, some superstitious meaning to it is nothing but a work of the devil, as Paul tells the Colossians himself. And to this end, Melanchthon has a long section here coming up from paragraphs 38 to 44, all with nuggets of things to remind us exactly what it means for the human traditions to be a part of the church and what place they have in the church. So we continue with paragraph 38. We cheerfully maintain the old traditions made in the church for the sake of usefulness and peace. We interpret them in a more moderate way and reject the opinion that holds they justify. Our enemies falsely accuse us of setting aside good ordinances and church discipline. We can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more fitting with us than with the adversaries. If anyone will consider it in the right way, we conform to the canons more closely than the adversaries. Among the adversaries, unwilling celebrants and those hired for pay and very frequently only for pay celebrate the masses. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service, or at least for the sake of reward. Among us, many use the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. They do so after they have been first instructed, examined, and absolved. The children sing psalms in order that they may learn. The people also sing so that they may either learn or pray. Among the adversaries, there is no catechizing of the children whatever, about which even the canons give commands. Among us, the pastors and ministers of the churches are encouraged publicly to instruct and hear the youth. This ceremony produces the best fruit. Among the adversaries, in many regions, no sermons are delivered during the entire year except during Lent. Yet the chief service of God is to preach the gospel. When the adversaries do preach, they speak of human traditions, of the worship of the saints and similar trifles which make people, which the people justly hate. Therefore, they are immediately deserted in the beginning after the reading of the gospel text. A few better ones begin now to speak of good works, but about the righteousness of faith, faith in Christ, and the comfort of consciences, they say nothing. Indeed, this wholesome part of the gospel they rail at with their reproaches. On the contrary, in our churches, all the sermons are filled with such topics as these, repentance, the fear of God, faith in Christ, the righteousness of faith, the comfort of consciences by faith, the exercises of faith, prayer, what its nature should be, and that we should be fully confident that it is powerful, that it is heard. The cross, the authority of officials in all civil ordinances, the distinction between the kingdom of Christ of the, or the spiritual kingdom and political affairs, marriage, the education and instruction of children, chastity, all the offices of love. 
From this condition of the churches, it may be determined that we earnestly keep church discipline, godly ceremonies, and good church customs. Again, as I said, a long section there. That is one paragraph in our reading. But we go back. And Melanchthon points out that many of the things that are traditions from the Roman church, we do keep as long as they are made for the sake of usefulness and peace. We take out every reference to them justifying sinners. But the Roman church says, no, 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 you take part of it away. You've taken all of it away, and you've left with nothing but the work of the devil. And Melanchthon comes back with, no, if you look at what we do, at what we teach, we actually conform better to your own canons than you do. Now think about this for a moment. The writers of the Confutation are probably canon lawyers. So they know the canon laws, or they should, basically backwards and forwards, because that's their job. And they are being accused of not even knowing the canons themselves. And that the Lutheran churches are more closely following the canons of the councils than the Roman church. I mean, think about that for a moment. What a slap in the face that is to the Roman theologians and to the Pope that you know, the Protestants, as the Roman church called the Lutherans and everybody else that protested against their rules, lumping us all together, which is, we'll talk about that another time. That is the problem. They think that if, okay, if we disagree, we have to be wrong. There's no room for education, no room for correction, because the Pope and the scholastic theologians believe they are beyond correction from anyone, including Jesus himself, which is why we move into paragraph 42. Among the adversaries in many regions, no sermons are delivered except during Lent. Only during the time where they try to make you feel your sinfulness even more by piling on works after works after works, demanding confession. That's the only time they pray, or that's the only time they preach. They pray, but again, the prayers are all for the blessings of the saints. And we'll get into that, like I said, after Christmas when we talk about the invocation of the saints and the proper understanding of that. But that's all they preach. Human traditions, worship of the saints, and similar trifles, which the people justly hate. Which is why many people did not go to church. Or if they did, they were there up until the reading of the gospel. And then that counted as being at mass, and they'd leave. They would not even take the Lord's Supper. They would just be there for the readings of the, of the Bible and then leave. And there are plenty of people who do that still today. Or people will show up at the beginning of the gospel text to be there to receive communion. All because they can be able to check it off their list that they've done it this week. That they've done their good deed by being at church. And people wonder why 
people don't like to be at church. And so then Melanchthon finishes off this section by going through many of the topics that are taught and preached about, which sometimes are still preached very regularly in our churches, some not so much because of the, the way the lectionaries are written. But you get topics of repentance, fear of God, faith in Christ, the righteousness of faith, the comfort of consciences, the exercises of faith, the nature of prayer, confidence in the power of prayer, the cross, the authorities of both the civil realm and the spiritual realm, marriage, education of children, and on and on and on. All these things that are being preached about in the Lutheran churches at this time that are not being taught in the Roman churches. And Melanchthon says, look at this. From this condition of the churches, it may be determined that we earnestly keep church discipline, godly ceremonies, and good church customs. Like with everything else, we keep the good and toss out the bad. Toss out the stuff that doesn't show its usefulness. That's just there as part of the superstition. Because the Christian faith should have nothing to do with superstition. It is not a superstitious thing. It is a thing that is very grounded in history and in fact. There's nothing about it that is mythology or anything like that. It is all historical fact. We continue on in paragraph 45. We teach this about the putting to death of the flesh and discipline of the body. Just as the confession states, a true and not a false putting to death mortification happens through the cross and troubles by which God exercises us. In them we must obey God's will, as Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. They are the spiritual exercises of fear and faith. In addition to this putting to death, which happens through the cross, there is also a necessary voluntary exercise. Christ says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, Luke 21, 34. And Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, and so on. These exercises are to be accepted not because they are services that justify, but because they are assumed to control the flesh, should overindulgence overpower us and make us secure and unconcerned. This results in people indulging and obeying the tendencies of the flesh. This effort at mortification should be constant because it has God's permanent command. The required order of certain meats and times does nothing toward controlling the flesh, for it is more overflowing and costly than their other feasts. Not even the adversaries obey the order given in the canons. What are some of the exercises of faith? The things that help us to control our bodies, control the urges that we have. And this isn't just the not eating meat on Fridays or not eating except for fish during Lent or any of the other things that we come up with trying to abstain and trying to absolve the flesh by ourselves. Because what that does is it just makes the ends of those times very, very debaucherous. I mean, think about it for a minute. For those 
who are very adamant about keeping the fast for Lent, whatever it is that they decide to give up for Lent. What are they doing on Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday? They're doing as much of whatever they're giving up as they can. What happens on Easter Sunday, Easter Monday? They're doing as much as they can to make up for it. There's no curbing the flesh, no controlling there. It's just putting it aside to then overindulge later. And that's not the point at all. We'll finish here, paragraphs 49 to 52. This topic about traditions contains many and difficult controversial questions. We have actually experienced that traditions are truly traps of consciences. When traditions are required as necessary, they torture in terrible ways the conscience, leaving out any ceremony. The repeal of ceremonies has its own evils and its own questions. But we have an easy and plain case because the adversaries condemn us for teaching that human traditions do not merit the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, the adversaries require universal traditions, as they call them, as necessary for justification. Here we have Paul as a constant champion, who argues everywhere that these services neither justify nor are they necessary additions to the righteousness of faith. Still, we teach that freedoms should be so controlled that the inexperienced may not be offended, and because of freedom's abuse, Romans 14, 13-23, may not become more opposed to the true doctrine of the gospel. Nothing in customary rights should be changed without a reasonable cause. So to nurture unity, old customs that can be kept without sin or great inconvenience should be kept. In this very assembly, we have shown well enough that for love's sake, we do not refuse to keep Adiaphra with others, even though they may be burdensome. We have judged that such public unity, which could indeed be produced without offending consciences, should be preferred. We shall speak about this entire subject later when we present on vows and church authority. So as he closes... There are many controversial questions because every tradition that we take away, there's a question, why? What's wrong with it? And the point is, we have to be able to say what's wrong with it. Or otherwise, we're just randomly doing exactly what the Roman church was doing and just setting up. They were setting up, we're taking down just because we don't like them. And that's not good either. Everything should be done decently and in order in the church, Paul says. And for everything that is done, there should be a good biblical reason for it. That's all Melanchthon is saying. That's all Luther wants to say. That's all we need to say, is that everything we do in worship and in life should have a biblical reason for it. And that's where this podcast comes in. It gives that point where we can have that moment to sit and to think about the things that are given to us in the confessions on Confessional Corner, given to us in the scriptures and digging deeper so that we may be better equipped to understand why we do some things, why we don't do other things, and giving us the arsenal to be able to wrestle with the things around us, because that is why I call this podcast Wrestling with Theology, because we have to wrestle with the theology, because everybody's got their own theologies. We have to see what is truly the 
theology of the Bible, the theology that Jesus has given to us through the apostles and the prophets in order to know the truth. And as Jesus tells the Jews who are listening to him, the truth will set you free. That's all for this week. Come back next week. We go into church and state matters and how it differs in 16th century Holy Roman Empire and 21st century America. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.